You're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and the outs of the solar industry and what it means for solar owners and industry. With Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading solar industry veteran Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Sunwiz, Australia's leading service provider of the solar and storage industry, and Solar Analytics, helping you get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings, and more insights. Hello, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven, and joining me, as usual, and fresh from the All Energy Conference down in Melbourne is uh, Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, the crickets are singing or out there I can hear, was it the frogs? Um, people might be able to hear it on the microphone as well. I think that means springtime. Just seen a blood moon. Lots of solar records falling over the last couple of weeks. But I didn't make it to All Energy, unfortunately, but you did. How are you and how was it? Well, I'm good, and it's great to be back. Uh, apologies, listeners. I, I had a bunch of listeners down at All Energy actually come up to um, to me over the course of um, what was an, an epic, record-breaking conference, biggest solar conference ever in Australia's history. I, I, I think the it's the biggest ever. Um, cool. Oh, it's like it's like Disneyland. So what was so, what was I, I honestly? Oh. But what was what 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 was it? I mean, was there just lots of people? Were there lots of exhibitors? Were there lots of developers? Were there lots of customers? Or just kind of everything? Everything. Every there was lots of everything. And uh, you know, after a few years of sort of hiatus, I think there was a lot of pent up energy. There was a lot of pent up money. Uh, there, there was a lot of uh, pent up um, affection for everyone who you'd missed, and everyone wanted to be there. So they were. So you know, record levels of crowds. I heard anywhere between. Ten and fifteen thousand, um, which which certainly you know puts us almost on the global scale in terms of the number of people's record numbers of booths. We had two story booths, which we haven't seen before uh, at our what happens at, conferences. What happens, to, what happens in a two story booth? Well, well, it's a it's a statement. It's, it's a big statement to have a two story booth, but um, yeah, no, uh, there was just there was just lots of everything, and everyone had sort of just gone right. I'm ready for this, and I'm going to give it everything I've got in every aspect. Uh, there were great events before the conference that I went to. Uh, a wise one uh, run, ran a, a really fantastic event the day before. Um, you know, did a live podcast there, which we'll talk about later, which was a great conversation. There was tons and tons of traffic. So if you had a booth, you were busy. Uh, if you were there as an attendee, you literally were struggling to get around. Two days was not enough to get around and have all the conversations that you wanted to have and catch up with everyone, let alone go and see some of the wonderful presentations that were given. So yeah, it was just, it was just fabulous on all levels. And it was, you know, it was Disneyland. Everywhere you turned, there was something that you wanted to go and look at or have a play with. I guess this is saying something about the state of the industry then. It must be, um, it must be all go. And just people just, um, you know, well, with, with energy prices going up, I mean, there must just be an absolute sort of, you know, fired under the industry at the moment well there is and and you know i think i think this event was a combination of sort of pent-up um excitement of everyone wanting to show off their latest wares and there was a lot of interesting stuff there um um but um 
you know, on the back of big announcements. In fact, the day that we were there or the day before we were there, the, the, there was big announcements about the cost of energy going up 54%. And boom, do you think the phone started ringing? The phone started ringing, Giles. Um, in <laughs> fact, it, it, it got to the point where uh, the phones were ringing so much that even the ABC called me and said, hey, we hear you like gabbing on about solar. Will you will you uh, jump on the ABC and we'll send a cameraman round? So I did a bunch of interviews with them about some of the stats that we're seeing, and we're seeing it. You know, we're seeing it in our database at Solar Analytics. We're seeing more people clicking buttons, and we're seeing more people um, uh, looking for battery calculations to work out. Oh, you know, should I add a battery? Or look at more people clicking the buttons to to work out whether they should switch providers quickly because they're worried about the cost of their energy. So, no matter where you look, it's going up. And and you know, the ABC interview turned into four or five stories, and then a bunch of radio interviews. And, and and it's been splattered all over the place. And, and that's just, I'm just one of many people who um, have been um, called by the, contacted by the press uh, to talk about what's going on. And, and you know, the statistic of the week uh, was um, was one company who said uh, that inquiries had, had grown by 750% since that announcement about the price rise. Um, and everyone I speak to has just run off their feet in terms of handling the leads and inquiries of people wanting to do something um, to, to you know, keep their energy costs under control. They all want energy freedom, Giles. Well, look, I get that. I mean, it's just a replication of what's happened in Europe. I mean, just um, individually and collectively and in, in, in countries, you know, being sort of, um, sort of stuffed around by the fossil fuel-inspired um, crisis and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's just quite amazing some of the developments that are happening there. But are these leads turning into actual orders and commitments? I guess that's the big question. We won't know for a while. We won't know for a while. We're certainly seeing in residential. Um, you know, everyone I was to, I was chatting to someone today and um, they are booked out. Everyone's booked out. In fact, uh, everyone's talking about record quarters. Um, and, you know, this year did start, start off slow for the industry um, and the second half picked up quite nicely. And there's usually a surge towards the end of the year. And everyone is extremely bullish, and 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 you know that that is turning into bookings running out into next year already. Um, you know, I spoke to one one company today. He said, "Look, we've we've never really we're you know relatively conservative. We keep things under control pretty tightly, but we're booked out um, into March next year already, and and um, of, of set records for how many jobs we're going to that we've sold and how many jobs we're going to try and do each month. So you know, I think." Um, at the residential level, especially, it's um, it's gone ballistic, mate. Well, that's good news because it's just fascinating to see. Um, you know, this is something we've been talking about for years and years and years, and we do mention it, um, particularly every spring and probably every autumn as well. Just these new records which are set, and you know, one of the big questions for people was, you know, you know, is it making a difference if I put rooftop solar? Um, on my house and things like that. Well, it does. It makes a difference to your bill, but it also makes a difference to the difference to the overall industry. And we're just starting to see that um, just just to what extent now with these new records set in um, um, around the country, really, both from the main grid in the eastern states and sort of South Australia, and also in Western Australia. I think what do we have up to eighty-two percent renewables in Western Australia, which is quite remarkable for like an isolated grid. Phenomenal. We've got to yeah. we've got to sixty percent um, solar um, for the first time, or just short of sixty percent, fifty-nine point seven percent solar in the main grid um, last week. Um, Forty-five percent of that was rooftop solar. At the same time, demand fell to a record low, so that's like about twelve gigawatts. 
um, in the middle of the day. And let's just remember, you go back about a decade, and the middle of the day was when the coal generators ate lunch. They just sort of, you know, set out to dine on um, on people's bills because um, there's nothing competing with them. And there was about 26, 27, 28 gigawatts of um, of coal-fired generation at that time, and um, it's much reduced now. And um, and a lot of them don't have much to do during the day, thanks to um, rooftop solar, and, and, and that'll probably sort of help push them out of the market within a decade. So, look, it's just, um, yeah, I always I always cover myself with the, with the knowledge that sort of rooftop solar is just basically helping to accelerate the transition. It's not just about sort of large-scale um, installations and, and storage, though, of course, that's needed. But, um, you know, the whole process has been accelerated. It's the, the backbone. backbone of the whole. <laughs> yes, I mean, you look at it and it's, you know, 45% from rooftop solar. The backbone of the renewable energy uh, revolution is mums and dads putting solar on their roofs, Giles. It really is. And, and you know, full shout out to to all the, all the hardworking people. I saw a guy the other day sweating and dirty and, you know, there was something online about how he was working in the most revolting roof he'd ever worked in and it was so revolting he, he vomited while he was in the roof because it was so hot and horrible and everything else. But, you know, these guys battle it out and they just churn through you know 300 350,000 systems every year and um and 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 it's just just keeps going and you know that is the absolute backbone of where so much of this generation is coming from now and and um yeah it's, it's a wonderful story it's a wonderful thing to witness this this massive change not just being talked about but actually just rolling like a great big solar snowball now it's, it's mm. a wonderful thing Mm. Look, and as we look reaching, as, as we're sort of, you know, getting, getting to sort of higher levels of um, rooftop solar penetration, um, we've had some sort of good outcomes and some bad outcomes about how to manage this on the grid. And we sort of talked about some of these sort of mm. dynamic um, uh, response things happening in the South Australia and Western Australia, which is at least it seems to be sort of recognising sort of modern technology and software and communications and things. Now, look, I know we talked about it in the past about sort of Queensland, but we just had another big story on the renewed economy, one step off the grid, and people are pretty angry about just some of the things that are happening in Queensland. So, what's gone wrong there, Nigel? What's um, why are they using sort of fifty-year-old technology to sort of you know um, try and control? Try and control solar in what should be a modern grid. Oh, that's that's the million dollar question. What has gone wrong, Charles? I don't know why they're using fifty year old technology. Ripple control, for goodness' sake, you know. Um, uh, I, I don't know the inside story about why they chose the cheapest, dumbest, oldest possible way to do something instead of actually taking advantage of all the technology that's available. It is worth noting that, you know, all the dynamic export controls uh, that were supposed to come into place earlier this year in South Australia, which were then delayed to the end of the year, have been delayed again. Um, and the word on the street is that, you know, uh, the some of the technology providers just aren't ready. Um, and, of course, with global demand surging for renewables around the world because of what's going on globally, uh, you know, one can only assume that, you know, they look at Australia and go, cool market, nice and fat, but, you know, there's a lot going on in other countries as well. You know, trying to get a manufacturer who supplies, you know, 50 countries around the world to adopt a new standard and a new technological behaviour just for Australia, just for one state, 
is a big ask. And um, I suspect that, you know, um, um, the reason that dynamic export control has been delayed in South Australia um, is because is because of that impact of because of those global factors and the fact that it's just one state and as as i said didn't go to where but on as i said on the abc interview um in one of the questions that i got asked they said what what needs to happen i said i'll tell you what needs to happen we need alignment it's just nuts that we've got different yet again um different rules and different regulations in different states using different technology some 50 years old some theoretically really really good and modern and leveraging benefits across the across the spectrum for consumers and for uh, the networks but yet in in other places they're just um you know slapping a slapping a knife switch on the solar and 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 doing it the dumb way so I really think we need some better national coordination with this and and you know for goodness sake if we keep going at this rate with with the transition at the rate that we're going um there's an enormous opportunity that is being missed by not moving to dynamic export control and i i wish they would all just get on with it and and align their programs nationwide um uh, so yeah the whole queensland thing's a bit yeah, it, yeah just tell me more about what, what it means then to have a sort of delays in the dynamic control. I mean, is that just, you know, is that, does that mean that more people are just going to get basically sort of switched off or shut down or, or whatever in the, in, in, yes. in the interim? Yeah, okay. That's exactly what it means. It, it, means in those situ- it means in those situations where, you know, voltage is rising too high, for example, or the, the duck curve has gone too deep and it's starting to cause instability issues, if they feel like it's appropriate, they'll just turn the solar off on, on consumers uh, and small businesses. And, um, you know, that is a very, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's as crude as export limits, which are just hard fixed limits. Uh, con, uh, uh, conversely, as we heard and we've mentioned on previous episodes, you know, you go in Victoria where they did dynamic export controls at the Sea of uh, Victoria, uh, event that I went to earlier in the year, uh, one of the networks was down there saying, yeah, here's a great example where we actually used dynamic export control in a couple of pilot trials and found that, um, yeah, we could reduce the number of times we were turning the solar off. And actually, we could use that energy a whole lot of times where we otherwise would have turned it off. And why, you know, all the networks have got the same issues. They've all got the same challenges. They've all got the same potential. Um, But instead of, you know, being smart about it, they just take this stupid, crude approach um, and that costs consumers and it causes confusion and it causes dismay and it causes concern about whether solar makes sense instead of saying, don't worry, if we need to reduce it a little bit, we will, and there's a chance for you to actually maximise what you're doing by putting load on the network when we need it and, you know, it, it all helps. It all helps. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it sounds yeah. like what you're saying, though, is just not just a, a supply problem. I mean, even though some of the, um, you know, supplying this new software or whatever it is and the new providers sort of getting their act together, you seem to be suggesting that some of the networks, even though they actually sort of know the benefits and understand the business, that they're sort of dragging their heels. Oh, 100%. I'm not suggesting it. It's an outright accusation. Get your shit together, you idiots. It's, I mean, for goodness sake, this is not, and it's not the first time it's been done in the world, right? It's this kind of behavior of getting inverters to behave in intelligent ways has been done all over the place. And it's just, it's just ludicrous that they would put a stupid knife switch running on 50 year old ripple track, ripple, ripple control technology instead of saying, well, instead of doing that, we'll, we'll actually take the advantage. It's just that it's just absolutely ludicrous. So I do hold the networks responsible. There's no 
I can't see a single plausible excuse for them. You know, they could they could have a Zoom call tomorrow. I'll book it in my calendar right now, Joss. We get the major DNSPs on a Zoom call tomorrow and go, right, you guys know how dynamic export control works, right? You know that the technology is there. Sure, not 100% of the inverter guys might be ready yet, but you know what? The good ones are. The majority are. They're all ready because you've been telling them it was coming to South Australia for, for two years, so they've all been preparing for it. Um, and, and even if they can't all do it, whack it in, do it, let the ones who can do it, do it. And you know what? You benefit, we benefit, uh, the consumer benefits, everyone benefits from, from intelligent control rather than just turning the solar off. It's, it's bloody stupid. Sorry. <laughs> I think that might be a good time for a break. I'm finished. I think we'll let you catch your breath and take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Solar Analytics. From just $40 a year, Solar Analytics can help solar owners save an extra $400 by recommending the ideal energy plan. There's no additional hardware required, just extra value. Solar Analytics, it's different. Learn more at solaranalytics.com.au. And of course, we'd like to thank all of our sponsors, um, Solar Analytics, uh, Sunwears and Pylon. We don't have now. any DNSPs on the sponsor list, do we, funnily? Oh, no, funny about that. In fact... Um, we should get a network company as a sponsor. We should get a network company. Well, look, we'd like to see a network company. I think Renew Economy has been going 10 years. I'm not too sure we've... Um, I'm not too sure we've ever had any advertising revenue from a network. Oh, yes, we did. We did have once, but they actually haven't paid the bill. But um, better not name them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's only two oh, years old. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. There's pl- I know there's plenty of great people in networks and there's plenty of people really pushing this inside. Uh, so there's an opportunity for a PR person in a network company. Come and be the very first progressive network company to sponsor this program and uh, give us some good stories about the good stuff you can do. Oh. Bloody brilliant. Bloody brilliant. Um, Nigel, what's next on the agenda? Um, I think you want to have a bit another spray. Are, are you ready for your second spray or are you just sort of still recovering from your first? I'm still recovering from the first. We should touch on uh, Great Solar Business because I had a great chat on sort of related topic uh, down at All Energy with Rick Brazal, um, uh, who is a solar industry pioneer and has been around forever and uh, does all sorts of things. And, and Rick and I had a wonderful live conversation about have we hit peak solar, uh, which is an issue that's close to my heart because formerly being involved in the industry for solar forecasting business and, and you know, trying to predict where the market was going to go, we could see that we were going to hit peak solar at some point and so rick and i had a great conversation about it um live at all energy great little crowd there as well for the show so um that's up uh, and live already and then uh next week also a great chat which actually came fell out of sort of um all energy when i was i was cruising the floor and bumped into the um the guys from uh, vault solar tile and I, I i know peter leeson the um the founder, uh, and they've sort of taken the, the the somewhat brave step of entering into the BIPV space, the, space, the building integrated photovoltaic space. Um, lots of people have had a crack at this over the years, and um, yeah, it's a challenging space, but there's a great opportunity and um, really, really exciting to see a new product made out of us, assembled and designed in Australia, um, hitting the market for the first time. Lots of excitement around that. So I've got a, a really good chat coming up with him uh, next week on the next episode of Great Solar Business. Absolutely. Look, it's actually quite interesting because um, 
one of the top best rating stories we've ever had on Renew Economy is actually about solar tiles, the old Bristyle solar tile, which I think was first unveiled about 10 years ago. I think actually Peter Leeson actually had, might have had something to do with. And he's back um, ah. dealing dealing with um, with Bristol, and so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interest, a lot of curiosity out there. Um, I um, and we actually had Peter Leeson on for a brief time in Energy Insiders last week because David Leach got very excited about it. It wasn't until too late we decided that we realised that you had actually done a longer interview with him already. So we just had him on for a few about five or ten minutes, and have pointed back to your um, upcoming interview. So. Um, we kind of stole your thunder a little bit, but maybe not too much, I don't think. And because uh, we had a couple of different interviews <laughs> on that episode with with that and the solar tuk, no, the electric tuk tuk guys. That's right. Ah. Um, IKEA wants to have electric tuk tuks in in Sydney streets, which um, seems like a strange idea, but um, it it might be one that just works. You never know. You never know. You never know. Anyway. Anyway, but um, but it's fascinating. Solar tiles. I mean, you know, um, you know, must have made a big deal out of it. Um, uh, with the uh, with the Tesla solar roof, but um, I don't actually think that's caught on very well. No, it hasn't. I've been following that one closely, and we've touched base on that over the over the uh, ensuing years since the announcement as well. And you know, really nice concept, but you know, had some challenges along the way, and blah 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 blah. And so yeah, we we talk a bit about that in the interview with Pete about the difference between you know different ways of d doing it and what the real world challenges are and um all that kind of stuff and yeah you, you know um the tesla roof tile really well you know tesla uh, as as a whole as as kind of you know got a different taste to it now hasn't it really elon's kind of you know he's cementing his position as a completely mad scientist i think uh or a mad genius or whatever you want to call him you know he's um it was suggested his takeover of, it was suggested to me so much so that it was actually suggested to me by someone who's not too sitting too far away from me that uh, we should sell our tesla and buy high hyundai um <laughs> <laughs> as, yeah as, yeah as a bit of a statement you know, it's a bit it's, of a... um yes <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, one of the one of the presentations I saw about brand, uh, fantastic presentation by Olivia Smith down at uh, at All Energy in the lead up in the Awise event. Um, she was giving some great examples of small brands doing amazing things and big brands making mistakes. And actually, the one that she used as an example of how to uh, have a PR nightmare around your brand was uh, Tesla yeah. um, and how, you know, they've really, Elon's really trashing that brand for a lot of people. Um, um, and, yeah, build some great stuff. There's no doubt about that. Uh, clever businesses, no doubt about that. Um, but I have to say, um, uh, I, I, I actually watched a full-length interview with uh, Twiggy Forrest the other day, and uh, I think he might be the nice version of Elon Musk. I was, <laughs> I was actually, where, where I did, was actually. Where, where did you get that from? <laughs> well, you know, come on, he's just quintessentially Australian. He's quintessentially Australian, right? So straight up, straight up guy. He's just, he's not faffing around. You know, he's over at COP twenty-seven doing an interview with uh with um um you know the set on the 730 report and he was sh he was shooting from the hip he was just straight up calling it like it was you know coke have done something wrong so i rang the ceo of coke and had a word to him you know and blah 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 but he talked a lot about hydrogen which you and i have both been you know quite skeptical about the the, the future of hydrogen but i have to say 
listening and watching Twiggy, I went, you know what, Twiggy, you've nearly turned me on hydrogen. I can see where you're coming from. I can see what you're saying. And what he's all about is, is people standing up and taking responsibility. He's not trying to greenwash. Well, the, the take that I have is he's not, you know, making all these big highfalutin announcements about utes that might come in 10 years' time. He's actually just getting on with it from what it would appear on the outside anyway. And, um, you know, what he talked about having achieved in hydrogen already um, and and why he believes it does have a role to play and, and it's not the silver bullet. He's got, as we've talked about, he's got a hand in PV, he's got a hand in EV, he's got a hand in hydrogen. And 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 he acknowledges that, you know, as a company that's part of the problem, I mean, he's an iron ore miner, as a part of the problem, the only way things are going to change is if people who are part of the problem actually step up and become part of the solution. And he was very eloquent, I thought, and very straight up and, and believable to me. Um, so, you know, um, well, I do. I, I should make an yeah, no, look, I think you should make a nice EV. <laughs> look, I, look, I've got, to, I, I've got to agree with you up to a point. I just think it's fantastic having um, basically Australia's richest man talking so stridently um, about this. And I think the fact that he's intervened and the way he's intervened in the national conversation has actually changed the conversation about sort of the course of energy and fossil fuels and green energy in Australia. Um, it, way to be, I mean, it's, ext sure it's extraordinary the level to which he's committed to being um, zero emissions by 2030. And he keeps on saying it's not going to be net zero, it's going to be zero emissions. So that's quite remarkable whether he manages to achieve it or not I, I don't know um and i agree that hydrogen is going to have these fantastic applications in many different parts of the economy possibly not as many as some would say i still can't see it in cars and i still can't see it um even in a lot of transport but there's going to be a lot of applications for it um twiggy's own um ambitions include sort of exporting a lot of um, green hydrogen to Europe and things like that, I still don't quite understand how the numbers of transport actually sort of fit in there. But look, he's a smart guy. He's not the richest man in Australia for nothing. Um, so uh, who are we to naysay that? So we um, we watch with interest. We watch with great interest. And, um, you know, I should just point out that um, Australia's three richest men. You've got sort of uh, Andrew Forrest, you've got Mike Cannon-Brooks, you've got Scott Farquhar. They're all just like really engaged with this whole um, green energy process, unlike the uh, richest woman in the, in, in the country, Regina Reinhardt. But so it certainly presents a really interesting, um, in, really interesting balance. Um, but there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, we're, uh, we're running out of time. So I've got a little rant and I also want to mention, uh, wanted to mention my, my friend, uh, Ed Darriman, because he set a new world record actually being the first person to ever ride an electric motorcycle across Australia. Uh, good on you, Ed, uh, you know, 4,000 Ks all the way from Perth to Sydney. Um, did it on a Harley Davidson Livewire, one of the best electric motorcycles in the world. Um, and you know, he just kind of went, well, you know, um, we've done stories on Ed before, and he's a bit of an adventurer. He's done motorcycle adventures forever, but he just went, I can, I should, I want to get the story out there. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to do it. And uh, lo and behold, he he, he, he did it. Um, I was very fortunate to uh, to meet up with him. In fact, a buddy and I uh, both got live wires. We met up with him about a K from his home, 
uh, on his on his final leg and um, and rode into his house with with him and a whole lot of people came up and thought we'd done the whole trip actually uh, which is a little embarrassing but uh, we only did the last kilometer but um, good on you Ed setting a new world record and being the first person to cross the country um, there's a new challenge now out there for someone to do the first circumnavigation so um, you know the challenge is down. I also I think we're going to call to, that, uh, we're, we're going to call that officially the uh, the round Australia rather than the circumnavigation, unless the Harley David Harley Liveway has special properties. But anyway, that's just me being pedantic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's right. all I got to offer today, um, Nigel. Also, it's all I got to offer. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I also wanted to. Uh, I haven't had a rant about Sky News for ages, but I wanted to have a rant and just. Um, uh, congratulate, actually, Rita Panahi, who gets my bullshit scaremongering Dolt of the Week award. Um, I um, happened to stumble across a little story the other day, which was just a stunning, stunning piece of garbage reporting, um, cherry picking the facts uh, about electric vehicles, and it was just, you know, it was just like. This is just so mind boggle, so such mind boggling garbage. I couldn't believe it. The the the, the crux of it was that essentially she said, you know, what you need to think about EVs is how the components of the batteries are derived. And when you think about that, think small children in unsafe African mines. Now, this is an issue that comes up. In fact, any conspiracy theorist friend you've got will regularly post stuff on, uh, you know, the socials about how, um, you know, uh, all EVs are evil because um, they they use co tons of cobalt from um, and it's kids in African mines. So I actually spent a ridiculous amount of time digging around on as many credible places as I could and doing as much research as I could about this issue. The Cobalt Institute is an international institution, uh, which um, obviously is in the interest of producing facts and figures on cobalt. <clears throat> but um, it was pretty easy to actually correlate the facts and figures from a whole bunch of different sites and go, okay, so what we're seeing now is a consistent story about how cobalt, how much cobalt is used in batteries where else cobalt is used so that we can actually get the true story um, so that Rita Panahi can educate herself and stop lying. Um, so uh, what is true is that EV and stationary batteries have rapidly grown to become one of the biggest users of cobalt in the world. So there's no doubt about that that is true. However, it's very easy to grab the headline facts, say, oh, it's more than 50%, more than half the cobalt in the world, and it's all being mined by, you know, uh, children in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, uh, 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 that's where it all comes from. But that's not actually true. What is true is about 25% of all the cobalt globally uh, mined currently goes into EV and stationary batteries. So it's not all just EVs. There's a whole lot going into, you know, your power wall. Well, it's not power walls anymore, but a lot of stationary battery applications. So it is only 25%, firstly. Okay, so that was fact number one where they just lied. Secondly, um, uh, the remainder, uh, well, well, the other 25% of cobalt, um, and, you know, what essentially what Sky were doing was saying you shouldn't buy EVs because they use cobalt. Right? That was that was the crux of their stories, and children will die. And um, it's worth reminding us where cobalt is used in our lives. It's used everywhere in our lives, Giles. The other uh, to another twenty five percent goes into mobile phones, laptops, essentially any portable device that has a battery in it. A lot of them use a little bit of cobalt in them. So another twenty five percent goes into 
the mobile phone that Sky News are delivering their stories on or the computer that they're using to deliver the story which you know while they're on air um, um, a whole lot of it in fact uh, a four percent is um, used in magnets um, you know you know so every washing machine in your life uh, starter motors in your cars everywhere there is a magnet there is some cobalt being used um, fourteen percent of it goes into chemical processes right so that's a huge chunk going into processing and making various different chemicals. 17% used in super alloys, so that's blends of metals, including, for example, get this, gas turbines. Gas turbines. You couldn't have a gas turbine uh, without cobalt because the blades need a very, very high grade of metal. You couldn't have a jet engine without cobalt. So 17% is used in these super alloys. Uh, machine tools, 5% of all the cobalt in the world goes into just keeping the factories of the world alive, which is not just about EVs, you dolt. Um, what else is there? 10% for other applications. Vitamin B12. I was just about to say vitamin, vitamin B12. I've been Wikipedia while you've been speaking and I've gone, vitamin B12, that's going to be my vitamin line. <laughs> Vitamin B, you, could, you couldn't have vitamin B12 without cobalt. You couldn't have paint. You couldn't have IC chips. Everywhere there is a chip in anything. And like the average car, as we've talked about before, has, you know, 2,000 chips in it. And that's not just your Tesla. That's your Prado, you idiots. Prados have got, you know, 2,000 chips in it. Ford Ranger's got 2,000 chips in it, right? None of that's happening without cobalt. Prosthetics, computer hard drives, radiation treatments for cancer for goodness sake and get this fuel refining you couldn't refine fuel because they use cobalt five percent of all the cobalt in the world is used for petroleum refining to remove sulfur it makes petrol cleaner right so firstly you idiots it's not all about EVs, and there is just there's just no plausible story in the world for saying we shouldn't do EVs because they use cobalt. You know, that's just outer garbage. Secondly, when you look at where it comes from, you get another story. So around 50, somewhere between 50 to 70% of the cobalt in the world does currently come from the Congo, although that is shifting dramatically, right? So about half to 70%, depending on where you read. And about 10 to 20% of that is mined in the horrible, horrible conditions that Rita referred to. So we're not talking about electric vehicles being responsible for all of the kids working in all the mines and all the cobalt going into EVs, and that's the problem, so stop buying EVs. That's just utter garbage. It is a, it is a percentage. Now, that is a huge problem. That is a huge problem, and that needs to be solved. And unfortunately, the Democratic Republic of Congo is not really that democratic. I don't know why they should drop the democratic part because it's a broken, corrupt state. But putting that aside for the moment, what you really need to look at is the companies behind it and say, well, hang on, it's the ones who were buying the cobalt from the mines. And by the way, they're not cobalt mines. They're nickel mines and and um, um, copper mines that happen to have cobalt in them as well. So they're all producing a whole lot of other things at the same time, um, which is important. But 50, 53% of the cobalt in the world is produced by five big companies. 
Swiss company Glencore is number one with 21%. So you know what, Rita? If you want to have a go at someone about the difficult conditions for a small percentage but an important problem to solve in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you should go talk to Glencore instead of blaming EV owners. Secondly, China Molly, um, they're number two with 11%. Uh, Eurasian Resources Group is number three with 11% of all the uh, cobalt, which interestingly is 40% owned by the Kazakhstan government. Uh, CNMC is number four, 5%. They're owned by the Chinese government. And another Chinese company, Zhejiang Hayu, owns, uh, is in position number five with 5%. So if you really wanted to solve the cobalt problem, you'd be naming those companies, you'd be working on those companies. Lastly, uh, it's also worth noting that about 5% of global cobalt um, comes from Australia, and there's actually a lot of expansion, particularly around Broken Hill, where there's some really good deposits of cobalt. And of course, they're going to be um, uh, in a good position to sell that because um, uh, they're going to do it in the right way and they can claim that it's um, it's nicely mined cobalt. Uh, and of course, what we also know is a lot of the uh, lithium batteries around the world, particularly Tesla, have really led the way, give, give them credit where it's due, in removing, uh, in substituting cobalt, removing it from batteries. So an, a decreasing amount is going to be required. And lastly, I also, oh, I've probably bagged Rita enough now, but, you know, she also referred to an article uh, where it said, um, you know, the headline was that electric vehicles are going to cost more to run the petrol vehicles. You know, that'll, that's going to happen before you know it. You know, it's all a great big scam. They're killing kitties in the in the Congo. They're responsible for all the cobalt use in the world. And by the way, they're more expensive to run than a petrol car. Well, interesting. I looked up the article that they referred to on Sky News, and that article um, was so bad. It was in the UK's Daily Telegraph. It was so bad that by the time I got to it, it already had a correction and apology, which said, and I quote, this is a rewrite of an original article entitled Electric Cars Were More Expensive to Run Than Petrol. The original article was based on flawed methodology and contained factual errors. We apologize for the errors and happy to correct the record. So, you know, good on your Sky News. Absolute garbage. Um, um, you know, and, and fear-mongering. It's like, and, you know, the thing that got me so up, I started a database on all these facts around cobalt and electric vehicles and everything else because I can see we're going to need it. But the thing that got me, if you go back 10 years, Giles, not even, maybe even five years, Sky News was bashing solar in the same way that they are now bashing electric vehicles. And it's just horrible uh, it, it is as transparent as anything. And Rita Pahani, you should be ashamed of yourself. Bloody hell, Nigel. That was one of the most eloquent and well-researched and detailed rants I've ever heard. Absolutely fantastic. I was going to interrupt, but I would say, no, let him go. He's, like, he's in a roll. That's fantastic, Nigel. Well done. Um, yeah, I mean, the scary thing is... It's strangely, strangely better now. Yeah, well, no, no, I'm not surprised. Um, the, the worry is there's about 150 Rita Panahis have just been elected to the US Congress and, uh, and the Senate um, in the madness that is the, the US um, midterms. Um, so there's going to be a lot more of that sort of um, crap going on around, um, around the place. So... Um, um, but, well, um, then, then there's, a, there's an important role for you and I to keep the truth out there, Giles. So, um, well, you know. that's um, that's basically been a um, that's been a raison yeah, d'etre for the last uh, for the last decade, I think, or more, Nigel. So, um, yes, may we keep on going. Well, mate, that's a um, that's a two round program. Um, do we have anything else? <laughs> 
I'll rant it out. I think that's a pretty good way to end it. Um, no, fantastic. Look, um, do listen to the um, the Great Solar Business uh, podcast, the one from last week with uh, Rick Brazil. Um, have we reached peak solar? And also look out for next week's um, on the Vault Solar Tile. Um, fascinating stuff. Nick Leeson, as I said, um, we had him briefly on the Energy Insiders podcast. Nowhere near as much detail or um, information as Nigel would, would have got out of him. Um, fascinating story. And um, yeah, Nigel. Thank uh, thank you. Um, we'll be back in a fortnight. And um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Solar Analytics, Sunwiz and Pylon, who have come on board the Solar Insiders gravy train um, and still doing Energy Insiders as well, which, uh, for which we are very grateful. Anyway, guys, um, that's it for now. We'll be back again in a fortnight. Go well. Solar Insiders was brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider for the solar and storage industry. SunWiz's partnership with OpenSolar will amplify the value delivered by their world-leading solar software platform. With pro setup, training and assistance, run your business at maximum velocity. Visit sunwiz.com.au. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by Solar Analytics, helping you get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings and more insights. Visit solaranalytics.com.au